Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast. This is episode 102. Today's guest name is Ryan Bourne. Ryan got his first taste of an exit at a company called Wire Image where he was the VP of Finance and watched and participated in Wire Image's exit for over $200 million. And after that entire journey, he decided that he wanted to jump in, become an entrepreneur, and he started a company called AdRev that did video rights management, which he eventually ended up selling for over 20 million bucks. He has one heck of a story. And this episode runs a little bit longer than uh, some of the other ones, but the reason I decided to keep the whole episode is because at first I've never edited out any of the content in any of the episodes, but Ryan and I... Throughout the conversations, he really just took it from start, which is how he started the company, raised the money, how he got the venture capital funding, the partnership, how he pivoted a bunch throughout the process, some of the uh, technical and the financial reasons he decided to sell and how he ended up doing that. But then he even really, towards the end, we had a really good conversation of what it was like for him working for someone else, why he's doing what he's doing right now. And it was just an overall really fun conversation that I had because he really walked us through the entire circle of what it was like to be an entrepreneur from start to growth to sell to afterwards. And I just had a really, really fun time chatting with him. He's got a lot of good wisdom. So I really hope you enjoy the episode. And without further ado, here's Ryan Bourne. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. So your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Ryan, how you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing good. I, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing your stories on the show. You've got some uh, really interesting things that you've done in your past and as you've become an entrepreneur and the different ventures that you're involved in, which are quite a few, and you've got a lot of different uh, pieces of wisdom I think we'll be able to pull out of you. But for the, you know, for the listeners that aren't um, aware of the, some of the things that you've done, can you maybe give us, let's start at, uh, at square one. Like, How did you become an entrepreneur and did you know that you were going to be one or was it an accidental situation? And uh, kind of give us uh, back to square one. Yeah, sure. So I didn't know I was going to be an entrepreneur, but looking back on it, it was unquestionably like a natural path. I was really always hustling. I had jobs from the time I was 15. My, my first job was watering plants uh, in Nashville, Tennessee. And I would work at a plant store and I would sit out in the hot sun in the summer and water the plants. And um, that was, you know, I was just always hardworking. So I always had jobs. And then I put my, basically through high school, I would just work various hustles, whether it be making and designing, drawing t-shirts and selling them or sort of like, running your type of lemonade stands. I always just, I, I always naturally thought you had to make money. It was like, you got to figure out a way to make money. And so you can, you know, for me, it was like, I can, you know, go out to dinner with my friends and I can have a milkshake or like whatever. I had disposable, I could put gas in my car. I didn't have to ask my parents for, for money. I mean, they definitely supported me and by all means they, they were, they were wonderful and, and I had a great education and everything. But in terms of like, getting cash, it was, I never really wanted to have to turn to them. So I was just always doing one thing or another. And it sort of naturally led me at one point, I, um, well, I became an accountant, a CPA. 
and didn't really love being a, I was an auditor uh, actually at, at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is a great firm, but I didn't really love for myself being an auditor and I ended up falling into media. I became an accountant at a media company, which is known, best known as Wire Image. It's W-I-R-E-I-M-A-G-E, wireimage.com and still around today. And when that company grew and I ended up getting bought for $200 million and I was fortunate enough to have had a um, common stock option grant as an employee and I, I also had invested a little bit of money into their Series C round, so I made some money as an investor. When I saw the founders of that company, um, who are still advisors of mine to this day, I saw them get very wealthy. Like an aha moment, it was so bizarre. Like no one ever told me. I wish someone had told me it. Either either no one told me it or I, or I didn't listen. One of the two it doesn't matter. <laughs> but but no one ever told me. Simply, they they all they had to say was this. They said they should have said, uh, you know, wiser person should have said, hey hey Ryan, did you know there's really only two ways to get to be wealthy. And I would have said, no, like you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be a basketball, NBA basketball player. There's a lot of ways. And I said, no, there's really only two ways. And one is you can inherit money. And that's not a bit, that's not a game plan. And uh, you know, that wasn't, wasn't my plan. And two, you can do it through capital gains and capital gains more specifically is done by founding a company with literally nothing starting at zero couple of dollars invested, whatever it might be, and eventually growing it into something very, very big and selling it. And your stock in that company is, you know, the, the gain, the gain on your stock. And so being an entrepreneur is really the only way, in my opinion, to create out, the best way to say is outsized wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you can work as a doctor, you can work as a lawyer, you can do very well. And I'm being a little bit narrow-minded in what I'm saying, because there are plenty of people that have, have created wealth in certain other professions. But outsized gains, enormous ones, are done by being, being an entrepreneur. And so when I saw the founders of WireImage do it, it was like, this is my time. I'd always been hustling. I'd always been doing different things. And I was finally ready to go out on my own. And that was when I founded um, a company called Audio Micro Inc., which had its biggest, its biggest brand became, was, was known as AdRev. And, um, so ultimately AdRev and Audio Micro Inc. were my, my ticket to doing it. And, um, so there you go. That's, that's awesome. So, well, in, I think you and I were chatting a little bit before the show is what are the things, you know, cause I think there's that whole entrepreneurship like seizure, I think is what they call it in the e-myth or, you know, or the, the realization like, okay, yes, this is the way to make money, have freedom, all the different things that kind of align up for, you know, someone willing to stomach the risk to jump in to becoming an entrepreneur. How did you know what you were going to be doing for your business? Was there like, was there, did you have some inklings that you knew exactly what you're going to be doing? You just were waiting for the right opportunity, like the, uh, the gains that you made from that uh, acquisition that you went through or like, how did, what, what lined you up and then what exactly did you do? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So when I was at Wire Image, because it's um, it's important to kind of go back to that point in time. I was in my twenties. I was living in in New York City. I was their accountant, and ultimately, I was their financial controller and VP of finance. Um, we had we had offices in like twelve different countries, um, and the thing that I was doing was it was a photo industry. So we were aggregating and licensing still images so just photos if you think of it like that obviously not non non video video wasn't as big back then this is the um early 2000s and the 
industry of the photo- the photography industry was going undergoing some changes and i was so i was following the industry very carefully like i would listen to the conference calls of the public companies in the space they were known as getty images and jupiter media was was a company at that time they're they're no longer around but um actually getty ended up swallowing them up but anyway um so i was following like what they were talking about on their conference calls and following the industry and i came across a bunch of startups in that space that were doing what's called micro stock and I was fascinated by microstock. I was like, this is the future of photography. And the difference between microstock and traditional licensing was that. So in tradi- first, first photos went through what was called rights-managed licensing. Rights-managed licensing means, hey, you're People Magazine, you want a photo. Then the photo agency says, well, where are you going to publish it? Oh, you're going to publish it in People. Okay, well, are you going to publish it on the cover or are you going to publish it on the interior? Okay, are you going to publish it a quarter of a page, an eighth of a page, a whole full page spread? Okay, depending on how you want and how big is your circulation, et cetera, what countries you're going to run it in, depending on all your answers to all these questions, they'd be like, here's your price. So you said a quarter page, you said U.S. circulation of a million, we say it's $400. Okay, so then they finally publish it, then you then you find the image being published, then you send them an invoice, then 90 days later they pay you. I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> right? I mean, this is like a lot of work to go through. I was going to say, how would you, I can't even imagine that like quote sheet and how someone would actually come up with that 400 bucks. <laughs> yeah. One of the most out of this world things, and now I'm on a, a sort of tangent here, but that we used to do is they used to sit there and go through all the magazines, the entertainment magazines, because <laughs> And they would flag with po- little like post stickers all the images that were wire that were that were from wire image, and then they would pass that flag magazine with like all these like little sticky things over to someone in the sales department to actually create an invoice, and then send it to the magazine to have them pay. And of course, then I was on the accounting side, and like ninety days later, they'd pay it, or you have to chase them down to pay it, whatever it was, and they pay by check, and you got to deposit the check. It was like totally bizarre. So anyway, what this is all to go into the next thing that happened in licensing was called royalty free imagery. And royalty free imagery was like you can pay you can, it started on CDs and discs and you'd get this disc of like 1000 photos, 500 photos and anything on the disc you could just use as much as long as you bought the disc cuz let's say the disc cost 1000 bucks, you could use all the images on it over and over and over again. And then the next step was Microstock. And Microstock was sort of a offshoot of royalty-free licensing. And it meant, the, way, the difference was it was crowdsourced. So the photo, instead of having, it also used to be if you wanted to be a photographer, you'd have to send them slides of your work and they'd sit there and an editor would review them and they'd be like, okay, this photographer is good enough. We'll, we'll add him to our roster and he's allowed, he or she's allowed to submit images. And, oh, this photographer is not good enough. And it was like, I was like, this is ridiculous, like crazy. So Microstock solved all that. Like anybody with a digital SLR and now, you know, iPhones have amazing cameras on them and, and mm-hmm. all, all cell phones do. But anyway, um, as, as cameras went digital, they went from film to digital. And the first DSLRs, one of the more popular ones was, was the Nikon D100. And when those came out, people around the world could just take photos in their home studio. You could be in Latvia, Croatia, Russia, you could be anywhere in the world and submit them to an agency and they would just review them on the screen. And instead of like accepting or rejecting the photographer as a whole, as a contributor, they could just pick and choose the individual images they wanted. So they were in short crowdsourcing massive amounts of photos. 
And they were licensing them for as little as a dollar. And in, in short, that was like microtransactions, like little small dollar licenses. Um, and it was no longer back to the People Magazine example, like, are you going to use it on the cover? Are you going to use it on the interior? Fourth of a page, eighth of a page, half of a page, a whole page. Like all that stuff went away. And it was like, if this is in a magazine, it costs this one price. And it was, and it was crowdsourced imagery. It was simple. And the, the ones that emerged that I saw were called, there was iStock Photo which Getty ended up also buying uh, shortly after they bought Wire Image. There was um, Shutterstock, which today is a public company. I believe it's valued north of a billion, possibly a billion and a half. There was Fotolia, which ended up getting bought by Adobe for like $800 million at the time. I saw them when they were very, very nascent. And I said, I want to have one of those. I, that's the future of, we're doing celebrity photo licensing. Um, Microstock's going to come into this space too. And that's what we should be doing. And so, uh, again, it's a long, long story of when WireImage got sold and I was like, it's time to go out on my own. I wanted, I actually initially wanted to start a micro stock celebrity photo agency. And believe it or not, that was the first vision for what ultimately became Audio Micro, which had really not, not much to do with celebrity photo licensing at all. You, know, uh, you can kind of tell from the audio name. And then two, what ultimately spun out of that was AdRev, which had nothing to do with photo licensing. And the journey ended up you know, being a successful one. But I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I thought that Celebrity Microstock was going to be a hit and was going to let me retire on some private island. And the reality was that wasn't it. And we had to pivot a number of times. In fact, throughout the journey of Audio Micro Inc., um, which had an initial name of Image Collect Inc., which was the celebrity microstock that I wanted to start. Um, there were like six or seven, I, you know, I don't want to get the number wrong, different pivots of products and services that we, that we launched, and which all, almost all of them died except for AdRev, which really took off. So, um, and then there was also, I guess I tell it in baseball terms, if I got up to bat, I had one company but each of our products was, was a turn at bat. I probably got up to bat seven times. I hit, I hit maybe one single. I got one walk. I got five strikeouts. And then on AdRev, I closed my eyes and I hit the ball as hard as I could. And it cleared the fence barely. And I pulled a hamstring running home, but I got there. <laughs> I <was laughs> you know? right. Well, I think it's, I think it's a really good, uh, I mean, it's a good analogy. And I think the pivots is something that a lot of people don't necessarily talk about because it's like, Oh, how did you do it? And then it's like, Oh, I hit this grand slam. But the reality is like most times people are pivoting and, and constantly trying to figure out where they're going. And so I'm curious, like, as you were kind of going, a couple of things is like, did you self-fund the start? You know, maybe can maybe take these in order. Like, did you self-fund the startup? How did you actually structure it? Because as you were pivoting, I think how people have their company structure, how they're capitalized, impacts whether they're able to pivot or not. But then also, as you were pivoting, what was gravitating you towards certain things? Was it a need in the market, or, or was it was it a type of business model? Because obviously, the micro stock business model was extremely appealing, and it and it kind of transferred itself into various uh, other parts of it. So. Kind of walk us through the, the, the underlying workings of that, the pivots and the, the structure. Sure. So the very early capitalization of the company was, so it was myself with no job. So I was, I'm going to work on this full time. So um, with no, for no paycheck. And if I fail, I'll go back to 
being an accountant. So I, I at least had like a plan B to fall back on. And the money that went into it was most of my, I had savings from the sale of wiremage. I, I cleared a little bit of, you know, money in the, in the, in the sale of my, of my stock. And I put a good amount of that into, I started, you know, first employee, I was just paying them out of my pocket. I wasn't paying myself anything. And then I also got two, this was, uh, 2008 ish. And there were zero, like credit was really loose. I think it still kind of is at this time, but anyway, like you could get zero interest credit cards with like $50,000 or maybe it was like $25,000 limits. And I got two of them and I was like, Oh, you don't have to pay this for a whole year. All you got to do is like make the minimum. And so I had like two zero interest credit cards that like I put a lot of the early bills, whether they be um, software development or hosting and storage. And I sort of was like, I'll figure this out later. And, and then, but, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to like put myself into debt. So I, um, I went quickly went out to raising capital. So when I landed, so after Wyoming was sold, I, I, my wife, um, and I moved from New York to Los Angeles where she, she's from. And I, right as I got off kind of the airplane, I started going to networking events. And the first one I found was the Los Angeles Venture Association it's known as LAVA. LAVA, I think it's like lava.org is their site. And I was like, okay, well, that's where the venture capitalists hang out at these events. So I'll go there and I'll show up and just start to network. So I started meeting venture capitalists. And a funny, this is a really funny story. And it's absolutely true. Is I, after I, as I got involved with Lava, just going to their events, getting to know the executive director, um, really a uh, great guy named Len Lonzi. As I got to know Len, he said, well, Ryan, you know how to use a, a camera. There's a whole other story I haven't told about me becoming a photographer on my nights and weekends. Even while I was the controller of WireMage, I also would spend my, spend my nights and weekends as a photographer. I taught myself how to use the, D, the DSLR. Anyway, so Len said, you know how to take pictures. We have our annual event. Would you be our photographer for the annual event? I'm like, sure, I'll be a photographer. No problem. I can handle that. So I would go around the, I was going around the room and I was talking to VCs and I'd be like, Hey, can I get a picture of you guys together? And then after doing that to a couple of VCs, I said, Oh, can I also tell you about my startup idea? And I literally pitched these two guys, <laughs> <That's> uh, awesome. <laughs> David Kremen and Scott Lynette from a fund called DFJ frontier. And they were like, I remember to this day, Scott says to me, he goes, yeah, we'll take a meeting. And I was like shocked. I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is going to take a meeting with me. And like, and I, and the funniest thing is after I sold the company, I was going through my photo archive and getting it all like organized and stuff like that. And I found the photo that I took nice. yes. <laughs> and I sent it to them and I go, this is when we met. And it was just like magic, you know, it's just like that magic moment that turned into the company. So they funded me after obviously they took a meeting and there was more meetings and more pitching and diligence. They ended up writing a $500,000 check into the company um, to capitalize it. And they were preferred, Shareholders, so they were they're traditional VCs, early stage venture capitalists, venture capital firm out of Southern California. Uh, DFJ Frontier was the name of. I think today the fund is called the Frontier Venture Capital Fund. They may have changed their name slightly, but anyway. So that that was the first kind of money, and then did they, they ended up what, what percentage? Yeah. So what what percentage did they get of that? And yeah. how, did, how did you guys get the terms and conditions of what like that structure was going to be? What you're going to be getting for the five hundred? So this is my first time raising VC. So um, they wrote me a term sheet 
And if I recall correctly, the pre-money valuation on the business was a million bucks. Mm-hmm. And so for 500 grand, they essentially bought a third of it. Now, I know that some people may think, hey, that's half of it, but you have to add a million plus 500 to get to 1.5 and then divide 500 by 1.5 to get to what they owned on, on what's called a post-money valuation basis. So anyway, that was the terms of it. And I was like, it wasn't great because these days, most startups um, for seed funding, they uh, you can kind of follow the, the market a little bit if you read a lot of the things like TechCrunch or whatnot. Like the pre-money valuations are like five million bucks for a lot of these San Francisco and even LA-based startups. So they've come up five times since then. And had I ra- had I raised on like a five million dollar valuation when we sold, obviously it would have ended up being more for myself and, and our employees because we had an option plan and employees had had stock in the company too. But anyway, I took it. I took it at a million. I was the only, it was the term sheet I got. I I, I didn't want to haggle with it. I wanted to get going and it was like, that was kind of, I mean, I talked to advisors one of which is the founder of Wireimage and I got advice um, from him on kind of how to work a term sheet. And there were certain, certain points that we went back and forth on, particularly liquidation preference and whether, what they call participating versus non-participating and what, you know, things like that. And I could go in a little more in depth if you want me to. So so a few things were negotiated. It wasn't like I just took the term sheet Mm -hmm. and signed it. But the valuation, I just accepted that $1 million pre-money. And then throughout the rest of the company, they invested another 500K. So they ended up putting in a full million because we burned through the first 500K and I made what I would, looking back on, call a number of maybe mistakes with the money early on. Not, not like huge ones, but just things I just didn't need to spend it on. Or like, you know, I hired a certain developer. Learning, learning mistakes. Yeah, that didn't work out. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. So anyway, they ended up putting in another 500 to the all-in. They had put in a million. And then a strategic investor, actually Fatolia, that company I mentioned earlier, that was a Microsoft photo company, ended up putting in 200K. So all that we raised in the history of the company, beyond my initial investment of my time and some of my savings and uh, the zero interest credit cards, was one point about one point two million dollars of outside capital came into the company in its history. So, and which is great context, Ryan, because I think one of the things that you know I've interviewed other people on the podcast or you know through stories is like you know what do you, when you're pitching these people and and nowadays you know the biggest difference between a lot of traditional businesses and a lot of people that are VC backed is there's always usually an like what's your exit strategy how am i going to get my money back so that's the biggest difference i i've seen with people that don't have that they kind of just chug along until they realize oh crap i need to sell versus usually it's push forward and you pivoted a bunch with you know as you're using other people's money and you've got partners that have invested in this how did those dynamics work i mean what, what, as you were pivoting and you were doing these different things what was their input and was there an eventual exit strategy in your pitch to begin with um to begin with, yeah, I think I I had a it's all it's all a story story right um, of what you think is going to happen in the future. It's all a, a the fancy word people use these days is a narrative. But I believed, and mine was definitely sound. But it was, you know, there are these players in the space that are acquisitive. There are there's Getty Images. There are these other micro stocks today. You know, Shutterstock is big enough to do acquisitions. And they have done some. And so I think my initial pitch deck had us selling after we grew to, you know, sizable business in terms of revenue and EBITDA, us selling to one of the larger 
players in the space. So it was an industry that existed, licensing of content. In the case of my initial business plan, it, uh, it became um, a, a microstock music company was what I was pitching. Uh, basically, if iStock Photo was selling photos, Audio Micro was licensing music. So as people would be creating video on their phones, people would creating more video period, they would need music to accompany that video. And they would turn to Audio Micro as the you know, place where they would be licensing that music from and it would do millions and millions of dollars in revenue, which it, which it didn't. I had to pivot. Like, a, you know, it, it was much smaller than I thought. But uh, yeah, there, so there was an exit kind of part of my pitch deck, my VC pitch deck, um, unquestionably. But that, you know, that was in years, you know, everybody's pitch deck, right? Yeah, I've seen a ton of them myself now. And they're all like, okay, we're starting at nothing, but in year one, we're going to do, you know, half a million dollars in revenue. In year two, we're going to do like two. And then beyond years two, they come up with these like crazy numbers. And by year <laughs> five and six, it's like, Unicorn. Like $1 million dollars in revenue and, and $8 million in EBITDA. And you're going like, do you know how many companies on the NASDAQ even do $8 million in EBITDA on $50 million in revenue? You know, it's like very few, you know, but like, anyway, so I always... Thing, I always have this joke about like anything beyond like one year or is just, just a joke. Like don't even look at it. But at least people should put reasonable numbers in there because if they put unreasonable ones, I immediately am like, I can't invest. Like this is just too made. It's too far made up to be reality. And I like to be with people that are more on a realistic wavelength. So mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, but I probably had numbers like that somewhere in mind, but they were probably uh, a little bit toned down from the average entrepreneur. Well, and I think it's interesting that, you know, with your, um, with your, with your exposure to that acquisition, you know, did you understand going in the, you know, the EBITDA, the valuation, the, the, the financial benchmarks that you were, you were marching towards? Cause I, I, so many people don't even think about that stuff. And so, you know, what's also being a CPA. So whether the financial benchmarks going in, did you have kind of like, so you had this, you know, exit strategy, but the valuation in mind as well. And how did, how did you measure that kind of stuff? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I, I think I understand it. Here's what I'd say. The accountant in me says that a company that doesn't make any money isn't worth anything. That's the accountant in me. But I learned a very valuable lesson at Wire Image, which was that's not true. And the company's worth what someone will pay for it, regardless of what its actual EBITDA is. If it's got EBITDA, it's a lot easier to start to put some multiple on it, you know, and come mm -hmm. up with like, you know, even if you just do like a discounted cash flow yep. of some sort, you can come up with something that somebody would pay today in order to receive, you know, what this thing's likely to generate in the future. But what I really, and so the economy was like, things that don't make money are worth, are worth nothing. But what I realized at Wire Image is that that's not true because by nature of a company that needs capital, that needs cash, whether it be through even an IPO or a startup that just needs cash to get going, by nature, it's going to burn that cash. That's why it needs it, you mm -hmm. know? So it's not going to be making, very unlikely to be making any money while it's burning that cash unless, for example, that cash is put into like what they call PP&E or property plant and equipment. Like maybe in your case of your, you and your dad's business, it was like purchasing copiers, for instance. If, they, if you needed to buy 12 copiers to start the cash flowing, you might need the money to put towards that. And, mm -hmm. and you know, those assets would be 
potentially collateral for if you had raised it as debt, they might be collateral for debt. But anyway. And buildings um, or whatever the, you know, a lot of yep. small businesses do and stuff. Yep. Totally. Real estate. Exactly. But um, I realized that that wasn't true because wire image, we were actually, we were growing really well. We were growing the revenue at that company. Uh, it, it was growing um, very well. But it was burning a bunch of money. And as, you know, the, the financial controller and VP of finance of the company, I was like, man, we're like, we're like, we're, 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 you know, in for, you know, if we don't, if we don't raise more cash, we're going to run out and we're going to, you know, be in a very bad place. And who's going to buy this thing that doesn't make money? Well, I realized that Getty came in after Getty came in and bought it for a ton of money. I think it was like 200 mil. The, um, I realized they wanted it regardless of whether it made money, they wanted it because it had dominant market share in entertainment photography. And they didn't want to be number two in any market of photo licensing. They wanted to be number one and, and they needed to take out their number one competitor regardless of what its EBITDA was. And for them to put together a, a deal at that price wasn't, was totally doable. They were big. They could do it. And, and maybe after they bought it, they would figure out you know, economies of scale and which, you know, which things on the, on the, on the burn side don't need to be there. For instance, we can consolidate all these employees. You don't need your office. So there goes the big rent in Manhattan. We can take half your sales staff and integrate them into ours and the other half for maybe they didn't need. I'm not, I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but like they can come, your accounting department, which I was a part of. Well, we don't, we can just assimilate that into ours. It's just more, you know, spreadsheets to do. And our team has a little bit of bandwidth to do it. And so, you know, in short, um, I, you know, I wanted to build a company though that was making money because another thing, uh, uh, you know, sort of anecdote I try to live by, if you will, or I've told myself is get to break even as fast as possible. And the reason you want to do that is because then you're not beholden to investors. You don't have to have outside capital. You can, if you, if you can still raise it, if you've shown that you can build a business, but you don't have to, you're not going to go out of business if you don't have it. And you can, at that point, decide, like the world is your oyster. You can keep operating it and growing at a certain pace, or you can raise more capital. If, if you can deploy that and grow faster, you can. But at least you're not going under without having more money. And so try to sprint. I, I, I sprinted as fast as I could towards break-even um, once I had the kind of runway to go up, which was the, gro the growth of AdRev was able to get us to break-even. And, and then some, ultimately, we were generating significant amount of EBITDA. So were your pivots, Ryan, associated with like and kind of walk through, which by the way, all that context is huge um, with understanding your strategies on the business and where you're, where you're sprinting towards. So was the pivots because you were listening to the market and understanding how, you know, what you needed to actually deliver and then what were the strategic mechanisms you were putting in place to sprint to break even and did that sprint have to do with your pivots? A, a bit of it. Yeah. Uh, yes and no. So, but I know what, where your question's hitting on and I'll, I can address it. So here goes. So audio micro. So it started as image collect. I wanted to do celebrity photo, micro stock celebrity photo licensing, sort of what Wireimage was doing, but just crowdsourcing it and licensing it more by subscription and for small dollars than through the rights managed process of flagging the magazines like I described. Mm -hmm. And I, re I, the first thing you need to, to, to build a content library, whether it be photos, whether it be music, uh, whether it be video, is you need content. It's a, there's like, and then the second thing you need is you need buyers. You need people to license that stuff. And 
it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg situation where if you don't have buyers, who's going to want to give you their content and put it up on your, on your site? Like if yeah. you have no traffic and you have no, nobody's ever bought a photo from you, why would a photographer want to put the photo with you? So you could say, oh, we really need some customers first in order to get the libraries. But the real reality is you need some content. So you've got to get content. So I was trying to get celebrity photo archives together from photographers that I had gotten to know that weren't wire imaging Getty photographers. When I was doing nights and weekends of shooting, I would stand next to a lot of guys and gals on the, on the photo line. And I'd be like, what agency do you work for? Are you independent? Do you actually own your images or does your agency own your images? So I quickly figured out who owned what and then started trying to get archives together to put on image collect. But this was 2007 and eight and the, the economy hadn't fully collapsed and these photographers didn't want to put their images with me. I didn't have one. I didn't have any buyers and they knew that. But two, they were like, well, I'm used, still used to getting 200 or $400 or $100 a picture from a magazine. And if you're going to price it by subscription for like, let's say $100 a month for 25 images. So that's like $4 a pop. That's way too low. You're going to drag the market into the gutter. And I want to, you know, I'm still happy with my current situation. So I try to get archives, meaning libraries of, of images from like the last 10, 20, 30 years, as well as current images from new events that were happening every day. And I couldn't. So I went with my plan B which was, I'll do microstock music. The music industry looks a lot like the photo industry did 10 years ago. When they do licensing into a video, a film, or a television show, they're doing rights managed. They're saying, where's your film going? Where's your TV program being syndicated? Is the music the theme song? Is the music, you know, all these different questions before you come up with a price. And I was like, that's crazy. You gotta have a microstock outlet. So Audio Micro was really like my plan B. And I realized after getting a music library together and sound effect library together and getting some buyers that that market was a lot smaller. They call it the sync licensing market without going into too much detail on what synchronization licensing is. In short, it's the attachment of music to a moving image. You're synchronizing it with mm -hmm, image. Mm -hmm. So for instance, use in a video is much more simple of any sort, whether that be TV, film or web video. And that market was a lot smaller. Just the sync licensing market was a lot smaller than what I thought. And in, for instance, the photo markets like a two of, of still imagery used to be around a $2 billion a year market of total annual revenue. Not huge, but, but not paltry. I thought music licensing was going to be bigger than that. And sync, sync licensing would be that big, but it's not. It's Somewhere, you know, depending on whose estimates you use nowadays, it's, it's, it's pegged at like 300 million, maybe growing to 500 to 600 million. So it is a growing area, but it's just not as big. And so Audio Micro as a library where people went to do micro stock licensing of music for videos, just ne it, was a, it was a single. Again, back to the baseball analogy. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. a home run. It was a living business. I had revenue. I had customers. I was able to, you know, we had we had gross margin. We had we had gross profit, I should say, on on that revenue. And we after we paid our, you know, software developers and our employees, there was some left over, but it wasn't big. It was just a single. And I couldn't I couldn't see it scaling bigger and bigger. And so we tried a number of other things. One so here's what we tried. The next thing we tried was Around 2000, there's actually like a video out there somewhere of me pitching this. And one of the judges, funny, funny enough, is a guy named Chris Sacco, who's like 
really big investor these days, but he judged my little pitch at the launch conference. And basically we pivoted into a bunch of different other marketplaces. So we had a micro stock music marketplace of audio micro. We took that technology, that whole back end of crowdsourcing content and an e-commerce storefront. And we did cartoons. So we would <laughs> aggregate cartoons from cartoon artists. And the idea was to license them to editorial publications like New York Times or somebody that would want to run a cartoon or even a local paper too. Um, we did tattoos. So the idea was to aggregate tattoo art and then license it to people that want to get a tattoo. They could buy the full on color artwork from our site. It was called Choose Tattoos. And they would also get a stencil along with that artwork. No <laughs> and then they would take that artwork to like their local parlor and say, this is the dragon I want you to put on my arm or whatever. And their artists could then, you know, use the stencil as the outline and use the color one as, as um, inspiration for the, you know, basically getting the right dragon. Because if you're going to put something on your body, why not have it mocked up once or twice, right? right? Or, or try it, you know, <laughs> print it out. situation. You know, <laughs> hold it in front of your arm in the mirror and flex a little bit. And do you really want that dragon? You know, so that was the idea. Um, we did infographics. So we would crowdsource infographics. And then we also, finally, I was able to do image collect. So imagecollect.com actually did finally launch subsequent though to audio micro launching. And, and we had already renamed the company as audio micro Inc at the time. So all of them failed. So except for image collect and audio micro. So choose tattoos, I sold a few tattoos, but not enough. I realized it wasn't happening. Stop investing in that. Cartoonsy, which was a cartoon marketplace. I think we sold one cartoon. I was like, that's not working. <laughs> infographic stock, which is the infographic marketplace. I didn't, we didn't sell a single infographic, a license, a single infographic. So I was like, that's not working. So finally, though, AdRev sort of was... So we launched all those marketplaces, which was one of our pivots. Again, all of them failed except for Image Collected. It was that was more of a walk. Like it, it did okay. It got it, it got some revenue. It had some margin. It was an existing business as well as AudioMicro.com. We had ImageCollect.com going for celebrity photos, and it was alive, but not huge. And I was like, we, well, you know, what's 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 happening next? And almost around the same time as those businesses launched, with the whole like you know big tech uh, conference, it's called, called the Launch Conference. Well, I'm also leaving out a whole pivot in between. So prior to all that, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm telling No, I want to know. I think it's important, Ron, because like, I think so many people don't realize that you're having to pivot because, well, first of all, you're trying to make money. You're trying to also scale and not just have a hobby business all within mind that you've got investors and need to liquidate. So I think it's a, it's a tough mental gymnastics that a lot of people don't necessarily realize like or talk about the fact that they got to keep all those in balance totally so i'm going to take one set so I'll, I'll real quick i'll finish what i think was almost around that same time adrev was born but before i go into the story of adrev being born i wanted to go into one previous pivot that i didn't even mention which was as i saw audio micro sort of not scaling to be as big as it needed to be to get a liquidation for the investors like just like you said i thought that there was a time on the internet and you may remember this where everybody was publicly sharing everything they did. And they, they still almost are. Probably, I shouldn't even be like, there was a time. But there, there was a time when it got ridiculous. The same, right? <laughs> and it was, you know, Twitter came out and people were taking pictures. Here's my, here's my lunch today. I'm eating, you know. <laughs> I'm going to the bathroom. Noodles. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, now I'm going to the bathroom. Like, seriously, they were, li they, were, <laughs> they were telling you everything they were doing. And I was like, 
I wasn't a, you know, the kind of person that really wanted to do that for myself, but I was like, if people are doing it, like I'm, I'm missing something, this must be the future. So one of the, I saw this startup emerge and this startup was the public sharing of your credit card transactions. Actually oh not very gosh. I don't much. remember that. Yeah, it, this one was called Blippy and it raised like, I don't know, 10 or $15 million. And when I saw the headline, <laughs> I was like, that's where I need to be publicly sharing of something. And the funny thing is, Blippy, as I, we joke about it a little bit, if you will, was not that much unlike what Venmo is today, where like you can, if you have yeah, it, I guess public, you're, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you're like, look, my friend just paid for his, his dog walker. How Bachelor cool party, yeah. How cool is there? that? Yeah. yeah. Paying you back for the bachelor party, bro. So cool. It's publicly sharing of your life. Well, there was this, Blippi was public sharing a credit card. Like every time you'd swipe it, it would like say, Ryan bought soap at CVS Pharmacy. <laughs> Who wants to watch that? But if, but if that's what's happening. So I decided in a dumb way, I'm laughing about it. I was like, voicemails. We're going to do public sharing of voicemails. There's got to be. <laughs> There's got to be a bunch of funny voicemails out there. And so we had this platform called Audio. It was spelled audio with an extra O. So A-U-D-I-O-O.com. Might even still be up. I don't know. Probably has been taken down. But anyway, where you could like extract voicemails from your phone and post them there. You, you know, you could, we had various methods of you publishing your voicemail to us. And the idea was people would vote on them. And we did this whole launch at TechCrunch Disrupt and I was on stage and we had Johnny Brennan from the Jerky Boys there who's an awesome dude and he was like, just it was all hype, you know, <laughs> like trying to like <laughs> get people to publicly share their voicemails. But no one wanted to do it. I, the only revenue I was able to earn, and what was the revenue idea there? Like nothing. I thought maybe we'd have advertising on the site. We would just make money off of like Google AdSense or whatever. But the only revenue I was able to generate was I did get one like phone related software company to like buy some display ads on audio. But anyway, beyond that small little check I got from them, it was like, this is a failure. So I shut that thing down. And, um, what are your investors saying as this is happening? I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, here's, here's what I'd say. So the, the lead investor from DFJ, the guy whose photo I took at that lava event was, was ended up being a guy named Scott Lynette. And, it's to this day we're, we're still buddies and it's, he is so encouraging and so positive. It is mind blowing to me because I'm like, you know, I'll kind of crap on an idea if somebody tells me something like, like I'm kind of a first person to sometimes shut things down. And Scott's just like always really positive. You'd just be like, go for it, try it, go for it. And he was just always like on the sideline rooting for us. And he was never, he was just always so positive. He was never the opposite and he would never shut things down. And so, you know, the answer to your question is he was shockingly supportive of everything we ever did. He just, he just let us do our thing. I mean, he was just a good person about it. And I don't, I don't know that I've seen it, but I've heard about it. I've heard of toxic investors. I've never experienced one. In fact, you know, and even in my new company, Hawk, like our lead investor, he, he, his name's Jim Andelman. And, and he said to me something like, my motto as an investor is a little bit like the Hippocratic Oath, which is do no harm. You know, do not harm the patient, treat the patient, help the patient, be helpful. And so I haven't experienced that, but I have you know, anecdotally had people tell me stories of like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, you won't believe what this guy who put in... 50k is trying to do to our thing and it's just like 
I don't know what to say, but the best is, you know, you have to pick and choose those, your investors really wisely. And I think in my, my, I was just lucky, you know, I mean, Scott was, Scott is a gem and he, and I was lucky to find him, you know? Yeah. Nope. Same so, as Jim. So as you're pivoting and stuff like this, as you're going through, like, you know, you're breaking, I mean, were you still having your eye on the bottom line and as you're pivoting and stuff like that, was there a timeline or evaluation or a specific person as a buyer that you were targeting that was making this all like to give you the motivation to wake up and keep taking the punches? Later on there was. So once we hit on ad rev and I can get into what that actually did because it is, is a little bit different than the other ones. I was just the yeah. marketplace businesses. I started to realize that there were players in the space that, that would want to acquire that type of business or did do that type of business, which that business is, is, is sort of an offshoot of content licensing. And it was, it's called rights management. And essentially what we were doing at AdRev, and I could get in, if you want to hear it, let me know, but the story of how it sort of happened. But what we were doing was we were fingerprinting music and finding YouTube videos that use that music without a license, the ones that didn't pay for it and, and properly get a synchronization license to use it in their video. And there were millions of these videos that were using music without a license. And we would get those rights holders paid, whether they be the owner of the master recording, which is typically known as a label, or the owner of the underlying composition, which is typically known as a publisher. Didn't matter. Whoever owned either the master or the publishing was a potential client for us. If they, hmm. owned, if they owned both, even better. And we ended up specializing in a type of music really known as film and TV and trailer music, which is typically actually owned by both sides, the master and the publishing are typically owned by the, by the same party known as a production music library. But anyway, and so that's really what took off. And then within AdRev, we grew a full service division for large production music libraries where we would handhold and give them very white glove service. We built a self-service division where people could upload on their own independent artists, could upload and contribute their musical works to us for administration on YouTube. And then we built an MCN, which is multi-channel network, which was a very hot term. It's now kind of looked down upon, but we built our own MCN, which was an aggregation of YouTube channels, and we would help them grow their own channels and provide them with you know, different benefits for signing with us, and the revenue would pass through us, and we would keep a percentage of it. And we ultimately grew... Um, once our EBITDA was kind of kind of going nice and steady, we were able to acquire a music distribution company called Dashco. Music distribution was the, is the concept of taking musical works, recorded music, and if you will, an album, and putting that album with iTunes, with Amazon Music, with Spotify, with Deezer, with uh, Google Play Music, with all the various streaming services. So we ended up buying a distribution company, and then collectively that made up all... Audio Micro Inc. had AdRev with the full service, self service, and the MCN. It had Dashco through the acquisition with the music distribution. It had AudioMicro.com, which was the sync licensing, um, microstock synchronization licensing, and it had and it had Image Collect, which was the microstock celebrity photo licensing. And that whole entity was what ended up getting acquired. And and I I sought out. Uh, we didn't use a banker. I sought out a number of potential acquirers in the rights management, licensing, and distribution space, primarily music. Image Collect was a very small piece, so the, that photo licensing business wasn't too much to speak about. So the rest of it was around music 
licensing distribution administration and you know was able to at the end of it all make you know make a deal happen and it was a very kind of fruitful deal for everybody so what was the triggering event that led you to seek out and why did you not hire an investment banker and then yeah let's start with those two questions yeah so we you know as we were growing we started to you know make these lists let's say of fastest uh, the most notable ones the inc 500 so inc 500 lists the top 500 fastest growing private companies in the united states every year um, at least it's the fastest growing ones that applied because not every company mm -hmm. even wants to apply. But we made it in, you know, the 2013 list, which was related to our growth from through 2012. So for the three years ending with the end of 2012, we made it in the 2014 list. And we made it in the 2015 list. And I'm going, man, like, are we going to be able to hit this Inc. 500 list? Like, every year like this is impossible impossible you can't you can't keep growing that fast like in the you know thousands of percentages over three year periods you can't do that forever and i remember like i used to blog and my website's ryanborn.net and at one point i'd written a blog about dig i don't know if you remember the company dig with two g's do you remember that one yep yep so the story it was like it was a story of dig and it was like basically how dig had at one point gotten offered a billion dollars i think oh my god i know it's just it's a stomachache right <laughs> totally and, and maybe i'm wrong on who it was but i think i think it might have been yahoo or somebody like reportedly offered them a billion dollars and they turned it down and like a year later dig was worthless for zero and maybe i'm exaggerating i don't know if they sold for like you know 50 million or something and it still wasn't that horrible but it went from a billion to basically nothing and i just remember that in my blog post is something like titled something like hop off the train at the right time and it was basically like things don't last forever and you know we've seen this happen whether it be you know economies and things going through economic cycles like like growth and and well they just you know um they just don't happen forever. And we're in this weird period right now where we came off of the recession of 07, 08. And now we're, you know, it's halfway through 2018 and things are like have fully recovered beyond belief and the stock market's up wildly and real estate market's up really amazingly, especially particularly at least in Los Angeles it is. And it's like, I'm just thinking, even as we're talking, I'm like, this isn't going to last forever. Where's the hammer? <laughs> like it's coming. It's coming. Like, is it coming tomorrow? I hope not, it, it, but it's coming. You know, it's coming. And so my thought process after I had these great growth years, like three years in a row, I go through that kind of Inc. 500 thing. I'm like, this can't go forever. Like, you know, you built something that's valuable, like get out of it while you can before your growth slows. And also, obviously I had seen, I knew internally just, just like almost like finger in the wind kind of feeling. It's probably a little more scientific than that. But basically, am I signing as many deals as I used to sign? Like for a three or four year period, I was signing all kinds of rights holders to Adrev. Like lots and lots of clients were pouring in. But then slowly it was like, okay, instead of like a deal a day, it was like a deal every other day. And then it was like a deal every week. And then it was like a deal every other week. And I'm going like, okay, like I can feel that this isn't, you know, we've got to come up with a new, another new revenue stream or another new revenue line or another new product and service or we're not going to grow as fast. And so it might be wise to start thinking, looking for buyers. So why we didn't use a bank is probably varied reason. I was, I'm pretty scrappy and I, I always never really could stomach the idea of putting a deposit with an investment bank. Like, like, okay, 
if you guys can go out and find a buyer and close a deal, like I get that you could earn a commission. They typically command a pretty high commission. I think it's, I've never actually hired one, but I think it's like 5%. It's like three to 10% depending on size of deal. And it's yeah. Got it. Yeah. So I'm thinking, why do I want to give them, why do they get three to 10% or five, whatever the number was like of a deal? Like that's crazy. They didn't work at the company. They're just sort of brokering this final transaction. And so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give that up. And I don't want to put a deposit with them where if they don't succeed, they still get to keep the deposit. I get why they want one. They don't want to do work and not make anything, but I just didn't really think it was fair. And so I was like, I can, I know who the buyers are. Like, let me try to do it on my own. And I went at it on my own. And like, there's, you know, part of me thinks maybe it would have been a smart idea to run a formal process with a bank where they, you know, have the whole book and they shop it and they sort of do the, you know, hey, they only want to, they, they can kind of play hardball with people and get to run the price up or whatever their, their, their game is. But like, I just didn't, I just didn't do that and went at it on my own. And it was a ton of work. I mean, I was like running around like crazy, still trying to grow the business, answering client phone calls, simultaneously trying to sell the business, you know, flying around, you know, trying to meet these prospective buyers and work through the due diligence process and all this stuff while the, while, you know, the troops were back at home keeping the fort down. But it was like, it was kind of wild, but it ended up okay. It ended up just fine. And I actually think looking back on it at the time, we got a great deal and it was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it away. I mean, it was, it was a well, good was deal. As for, the, the, I mean, if you, if you got some top line gross numbers or employee count or something, what was some of the benchmarks of how big the company was? Yeah, it was generating, um, well over multiple double digits of top line revenue. Um, sorry, multiple double digit millions. Yep, if I yep. say that. So 10 bucks, seven, eight, that would be eight figures, multiple eight figures of top line revenue. And it was generating multiple seven figures of EBITDA. So, you know, you can, I don't want to give it, well, yeah, you can kind of back into way, it, but you can kind of guess where it was. And, and so it was a decent company, you know, and, um, employee wise, it was actually fairly leanly run. The leading, to, leading to good EBITDA, obviously. And it, yeah, what was the, no, I think, you know, when you and I were talking, when I, you know, some of our mistakes were, it's the deal structure. So let's say, you know, so you, you chose not to go with an investment banker, which their role varies depending on who you hire or choose to hire with the process and their goal is to drive up the price. But like for the deal structure, you know, in what, what kind of role did your investors have or how did you help structure the deal and the terms and conditions. I think there's such a huge amount of gotchas out there because it's like, hey, by the way, here's your multiple millions of dollars, but then, oh, by the way. <laughs> and there's all of this other stuff from your involvement, what's going to happen when you get the money, what you know, the taxes, all that kind of stuff that are involved in it. Did you go in eyes wide open? Did you have people that helped you? And how did you kind of work through that? Yeah, so um, Scott, um, was definitely extremely helpful as, uh, you know, he was a large shareholder. His fund was a large shareholder in, in my company, but he was very helpful in terms of like advising. Like, you know, I would turn to him a lot for all the questions and what were coming through. He took a, uh, a meeting or two with each potential um, acquirer. Um, it starts with, you know, you go out, you try to find a potential acquirer, you end up, once you get one LOI, which is letter of intent, and it says we 
here's a letter. We basically want to buy the business for this much money. Here are the other terms and conditions upon which we would want to buy it. It's usually a couple pages long, non-binding except for once you sign it, you usually enter an exclusive negotiation period for a particular period of time. Maybe it's 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, something like that. And once you get one of those, you you haven't signed it, but you've gotten one. You know, you can then go to the other ones you're talking to and you can go, well, I got it. I got it. My first LOI. Do you guys want to throw one in or not? And you kind of got to like push people towards doing that, you know, because they're going to kick the tires as much as they can. And if they don't think that there's competition on the deal, they're not going to necessarily just write you an LOI. And the, the price on their LOI is going to usually be their first, first offer is going to be low. Right. Mm-hmm. So we got like a crazy low one that I was never going to take, but it was an LOI. And obviously I thanked them for sending it and making an offer. It's better than not making one. And then I went to the other parties and I was like, we got an LOI. Like you guys want to put yours in and then they put theirs in. And then, you know, the third one maybe puts it in and you try to drive them up to, you know, a more reasonable price. And you end up, we end up, we actually had one that, we entered into exclusive negotiations with and they were kind of slow to close. Like we were going to go with that deal and they were fairly, they were like dragging their feet on like certain legal terms in the long form agreements that were, if I recall correctly, it was something silly. It was like related to like indemnification baskets. Which <laughs> I don't even want to bore your listeners with what those are, but like you can let the lawyers figure them out. And it basically means if there's like a claim that comes in, who takes who takes the hit for it first? Is it the buyer or the seller? And up to how much? And that kind of thing. And, you know, it's like they were like dragging their feet and the exclusivity expired because the deal hadn't been, hadn't been closed by that point in time. And so at that point, I notified them. I said, you know, our exclusivity period has expired. I'm in good faith, want to negotiate with you to close this transaction. But just so you know, at this point, I'm, we are free to entertain other potential suitors. And we did. And ultimately another one came in and they wanted to pay much more. And, you know, I went back to the one who we had almost closed with and said, look, we got this much higher offer. Do you guys want to match it? Like, we'll still close with you if you guys want to match it. And they were like, they, they were like, no, we'll come up the tiny, they came up the tiniest amount. It wasn't anywhere close to matching. And they're kind of, were like saying to me, well, you know, we don't think that deal will actually close. Like we close. We have money and we close. We're closers. When we want to do a deal, we, we, we're going to do the deal. And this other one, even though you got it, we don't really think it'll close. And if you go with that one, just know that we might, we will, we will not be here when you come back to, if, when you come back to us kind of thing. Right? It's like poker, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had to have this, this thought. I was like, should I take bird in hand? These guys are going to close. They're telling me how they close everything. They got all this cash. And it was true. They were, they had, they, if you went up their capital chain, they were private equity owned and they had a lot of money. And, or do you want to go with this other party and who they think may not close? And it was like, I'll roll the dice with this one. It's just a better price. And of course, that other suitor actually did close. And it was, it was reported at $20 million cash for a majority of the business. And, you know, it, reality was it was a little more than that, but that's, um, you know, that was a good deal. You know, one and 1.2 million in outside capital raised for an exit well north of 20 million. And it was a cash deal. So a couple questions on that is like, is, you know, I think there's a lot of people that I've talked to people have been on the show that they just go with one buyer, which obviously you specifically found the reason why you don't do that. Um, but then, you know, you had talked about, you know, you, 
you did a couple of things that I see as extremely right, um, which is a lot, but also the, the fact that you had mentioned that, you know, you don't need to be making money to sell because there's a lot of strategic reasons people will buy a company that's not making money, which business valuations and how they're valuing a company like that is up to them and what it's worth to them. But then there's a typical financial way, which is a multiple EBITDA or discounted cash flow. How were you strategically doing that, Ryan? Because you were strategically going to a strategic buyer because you said you knew the buyers. How did they value it and how did you know what cards you were playing when you were looking for that number? Yeah, so I, you know, just on the EBITDA, because we had solid EBITDA, you know, had a, had a decent number on what's like kind of what I think we're worth on that basis. But then Scott, who does a lot of investments, um, he knew what companies in the YouTube space were going for because he had either been in other deals or his partners and his fund were in other deals that were in the space and or his colleagues and they all talk, right? They all know each other. Yep. You know, VCs know each other. They, they, they compete against each other and they serve on boards with each other. I mean, they know each other. And so he knew maybe from his colleagues as well what multiples other companies in their portfolios were selling for. And so he actually, I remember being in the meeting with the first suitor that had the very, very, very low offer. It was like the first LOI. And him saying back to them, well, I know, you know, companies in this space typically go for this multiple and it was way higher, you know, and I'm like looking over at Scott going like, is he like, is he bluffing or is he playing? Play? And like, <laughs> we left the meeting and I'm like, I'm like, who are you referring to? Like, and he's like, dude, I know for sure. Like this one sold at this multiple and like your work, you can get that much, you know, it's, it's possible. So don't, don't take this deal at that price. And so he was very helpful in knowing the, like it's a, you know, these are private transactions, so it's not like you can publicly on you know know how much AT and T bought uh, Time Warner for, right? right. Like that's maybe pegged in public because it's so big, but, and they have to disclose it because it's so material. These kinds of things, when they're twenty million dollar deals, fifty million dollars, even hundred million dollar deals, if they're not material to the acquirer, they don't get pushed out. And so the only people that really know the terms are somebody that might have been involved or involved, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. so. He kind of, he was right. The truth is he was right. The number that he thought we could get was the number we, maybe even actually a little bit better, we actually did get. And he would, but I, we would have taken less than that, uh, you know, because that was the best I had at the time. But through this sort of, um, you know, different LOIs, different suitor situation, the exclusivity expired, expire and some expiring and somebody coming up on their offer, we ended up with the right number. We ended up at what would be considered market or maybe a little bit better than market price for our company at that time. You know, and it worked out. And was it, was it a multiple of EBITDA or multiple of revenue? And then how did that affect like the strategic, I mean, in, you know, maybe it was just a different way of actually getting to that value where it was a multi, it was a higher multiple because there was a strategic reason for them to do it. Cause I think, you know, in the context of my question is there's, you know, what I, I usually tell, tell a lot of our clients or, you know, people we've, I've heard from is that, you know, a buy, like you said, a buyer, your company's worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So the strategic situation, the multiples kind of go through the roof or they go out the window because there's a strategic reason. So was there kind of a, a two different ways that you got to that dollar amount? Well, they, they, they put forth that number, right? Like, um, 
I didn't, we didn't say it needs to be this number or we're not doing it kind of thing, which is, Got it. You let the market which is honestly not a bad strategy. If you, if you ask me looking back on things, if you I just agree. tell the seller, this is our number and we'll do the deal at this number and you're comfortable with that, they may come up to it and you're good. You know, you don't have to play this sort of silly game of back and forth, you know? Or they uh, say yes, and you left a shitload of money on the table. <laughs> yeah, well, they, you know, that's the other way to look at it. But as long <laughs> as you're comfortable, it's true. You know, make a good point. You kind of can sell yourself. There's always this, you know, he, he who throws out the first number always loses, right? That's kind of like a, a business, call it a whatever, you know, business isms from Ryan. Like, that's one of those things I've said is like, he throws out the first number always loses. But if you, cause like you said, if you throw it out and it's, it's what you want and they take it, you, maybe you could have had higher. So you're losing. And if you throw it out and they're like, no way we're coming up that high, we're walking from this PC later, then you lose a potential deal, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, it's always tricky. So I tend not to like to throw out the first number. I prefer for somebody else to, but anyway, in this whole situation, we had numbers going back and forth with other suitors and this other one came in and they threw it out and it was, it was a number we were totally willing to take at that point. And it, it felt, you know, back to kind of what Scott had like kind of guided us towards. He's like, it felt like it was, it was above, a little bit above market mm-hmm. price. Yeah. Ryan, as you're going through all this, because you were running the company, keeping it afloat and flying all over, meeting with these buyers and doing all this stuff, did you have any inkling of what you were going to do afterwards or what your role was going to be in the business afterwards and whether you want to control or to walk away? And how did that whole journey, like once you signed, how did that all transpire? Yeah. So I had high hopes for the acquirer. I believed that they were going to execute a roll up beginning with my company that they would begin to acquire other companies that all had synergies that were all in, in, in what I believed would be in the music distribution administration and content licensing space. You could even say content distribution administration license. It didn't have to be music because I have you know, the photo background and, and video background too. So um, I thought that that's what they would be doing and that I could play a very important role in their executive team and that there would be equity for me going forward so that I would be motivated to do a great job and stay on. That didn't turn out to be the reality after the deal closed. It turned out to me like the deal closed, we got paid. Um, we made it through the earnout, you know, and everybody got their their payments. And I was like just an employee now, and I could come into work and I could make my base salary, which I had just been paid a significant amount of money, and the base salary really wasn't meaningful anymore. The at the at the number that I was being paid, and I wasn't. they weren't going to pay me lots more at a base salary. And I went from an owner to an employee and it was like just totally weird for me. It didn't, um, I didn't feel motivated. You know, I didn't need the base salary. And so why was I going to bust my butt anymore after I was comfortable in terms of, you know, what I had just cleared, um, you know, through capital gains. It was like, why, what what else is there in life? I had I had put aside my social life. I'd put aside a lot of my family life and responsibilities. I had a young child and wife, and um, I needed to kind of just get my life back in order. My, I was out of shape, and my back was starting to hurt, and 
all that's been corrected. I'm now, you know, my back's feeling great and I've been, you know, playing lots of sports and exercising a ton and everything's, you know, good in that regard. But at the time it was like, I felt burned out and just to work for a base salary. Just, so I just, I resigned. And, um, luckily I left feel? The, um, it was sad, you know, um, I didn't want to ha- I didn't want to do it, but they didn't give me any reason to stay, you know? And f- frankly, it was, it, it, it was, it, it was depressing, you know, like not just resigning, but like the day, the, 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 the year plus after was like, I went from, you know, having started something that through twists and turns and almost going out of business succeeded and got this good exit. And, you know, I felt like I had the golden touch and, you know, everything was great. I'm, I'm, I'm important. I am, I'm CEO of a startup and, you know, venture back startup with an exit. And then I went from that to like, sitting on the, you know, I'd go, I'd go work out, I'd get my smoothie and it would be like 1030 in the morning. And I'm like looking at the stock market going up and down and I'm like, no, the phone's not ringing and nothing's blowing up in my email. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, Oh man. And it, it really, as a happy as a time, as a lot of people would think it would be, they're like, you got paid, like go party, like whatever. It wasn't because one, I'm too old to go out and party and none of my friends want to party on a Tuesday, you know, they all got to work, you know, <laughs> and I might not have to work, but they do. So there's no one to celebrate with. And you, you know, my kid's in school all day long. And so I can only see her when she's back from school, which is pretty much at the end of the work day. And, you know, kids go to school for a long time. They're there like eight in the morning until like four. It's like a, it's a long time, you know? And so it was like, kind of like, what, what's going on? Like I was sitting there flipping, you know, watching the stock market, the doorbell would ring. It would be like amazon.com with a package. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, great. Like I just, oh, I just, so I just true. opened the door. And then like, next thing I know, it's like, what are we doing for dinner? Can you make a grocery run? And I'm going like, what, ha- how did all this stuff just happen when I was working before? But all of a sudden, like I have to answer the door. I got to clean up my mess, like whatever. Like I'm, it sounds so silly, but like basically it wasn't rosy. It just didn't feel rosy. I felt like I needed to be active. I needed to be involved. And so ultimately, um, first we started doing some consulting for, uh, uh, animation studio in LA and that got me kind of back into working. And then ultimately I was like being, you know, consulting while it pays, it just, isn't exciting because you're not the owner and you bring them all these ideas and if they don't want to execute them, it's just sort of like, that's, that's it. Those ideas die. And so I decided along with my co-founder, um, uh, Ben to start a new company called Hawk. And part of it was just like, we just got to get, I just got to get active again. I just can't, I'm too young to just sit on the couch and flip the channels and answer the door, you know? So I do. (laughs) It's like like so funny, Ryan. Like, I mean, even to this day, I know my dad's going to listen to this and a lot of people can relate that have gone through this, what you've gone through with Like, okay. You know, him and I, as business person would talk literally all day, every day. And then it's about business because there's a reason to talk. And now it's like, we're still trying, but it's like, I don't, I know you've got Comcast showing up and there's an HVAC and you're fixing this, but I'm like, you remember you never used to talk about that stuff and it just used to happen. And and like, there's just this whole void there that it's, it's tough to explain. It's yeah, absolutely. It really is. 
so, so I missed it. And so, so how did you, do, so what's con, like with Hawk Consulting and what you're doing now, I mean, what's the goal? How did you, you know, what are you guys trying to accomplish and how are you getting your fulfillment and how have you approached this differently than you were before? Yeah. So with Hawk, um, we, we, the first thing was, let's just be active. Let's start a company. And I just was looking for cool names and I found Hawk with two A's. Uh, com was available and it was pretty inexpensive because of the, I guess because of the misspelling though it is a five letter dot com it's a pretty decent little domain so we just bought it it was like we could be anything <laughs> it could be <laughs> you know, it could be a right it could be a rights management business which it actually is or it could be like a tool company I don't know it could be anything right it's Hawk it's kind of a cool cool name so it started with just like let's get a name let's get a little office let's get out of the house let's get off the couch and let's um, build some things. Let's tinker. Let's throw all the ideas we've got. So my co-founder and I did that. And we ended up, you know, after, you know, just some time as well as just also just trying to get our, our sea legs, we just decided, believe it or not, to pretty much enter a similar space that we had been in. We just, we didn't have non-competes, which is crazy. And I know no it, kidding. you're going to think I'm like some master of negotiation and it's, I'm not. The reality of it is the buyers didn't extend, didn't, ex, you know, you know, ask us to sign non-compete agreements at the time of the transaction. They just simply did not. That's and crazy. it was more of an oversight in my opinion on their behalf than any, wasn't it some clever thing we did or anything like that. And so we were able to just be in rights management again. And so that was what, 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 where Hawk started and it's done, it's doing a lot of things differently. Um, but it, at its core, it, it does rights management for social video platforms, including YouTube and, and Facebook. Are you approaching, you know, going through the whole 360 of the, the entrepreneurial journey and now that you're doing this and you don't, you know, you've gotten a windfall of capital gains. Are you approaching the operations differently, who you're working with differently because you've got this, you know, very solid freedom of choice? Yes, to an extent. Um, a few things are different where I'm, I'm playing a little bit more of chess than checkers and I'm going after, I'm trying to use my time and go after the deals that make the biggest and most important moves and strategic moves rather than just sort of small jumps. Um, so there's some of that. I'm, I, I used to take everything ungodly seriously. Like just the smallest thing was, was like the world was on fire, you know, and it could be, it could be anything. And I was just like, I got to get to this email. I got to write back to this. I got to get this contract out. I got to, I got to do this. I got to like everything needed to be done fast on nights, on weekends, all the time. And I realized, you know, having after selling it, like it's, it's, you know, you need to spend, it's the 20, 20% of your time is actually really high is it makes up 80% of the value. You know, it's the old 80, 20 rule. And like, if you just focus on those, that stuff that's that 20% most important that makes up 80% of the value, you're going to be a lot less stressed. And, and that's kind of how I'm playing it this time around. It's the best way to say it. It's like, I just don't take it as seriously. I've been through enough deals and transactions to where like the email can wait until Monday. That thing, you can get back to that thing later and you're not going to lose it. It's like the world is not on fire all the time. And you don't need to stress over it. And so 
I'm trying to take that approach. Obviously, I, I still sort of slip sometimes can slip back into the old way, but much, much better at it. Um, taking care of myself first, like making sure I get my workout in every day I can in the morning before I go in and, you know, get to the what's what's on, you know, the company's to-do list. I'm just making sure that those things come first and that family comes first. I make sure I'm home for dinner time. I'm there through bedtime. If I need to get to something, I can get to it in the evening after that. You know, mm-hmm. like just chunking it up and taking more strategic approach to everything versus the past where everything was a fire. Everything had to be responded to quickly. It was on, it was on 24 hours a day, all, all, all on weekends, on holidays, on vacations. And it was just bad because all that stuff just wasn't adding a lot of value and it was cutting into like myself. And so I just wanted to be happier in you know, my day-to-day approach to things. So. I think that's pretty solid advice. I mean, having balance as an entrepreneur is, is tough and, you know, realizing it when it's not too late is the, is the key part. Yeah. Um, as, as we're wrapping up here, Ryan, your stories are awesome and there's so much context behind it. And I think, you know, if we talked about a lot, is there, if there's one thing you want to maybe highlight on some of the stuff that we talked about, or if there's something that we maybe missed and you want to leave our listeners with, what would it, what would it be? Well, one thing I like to tell or, you know, say to, to folks that are thinking about entrepreneurship is, you know, you've got to get on the field and try. You are not going to score a goal if you're not on the field. And I think for a lot of people, they say, I'd start a business if only I had the savings or I'll start a business once I'm married and settled down or I'll, I'll, do, I'll have a kid once I'm settled down and have my company. Like whatever it is, it's like, it doesn't work like that. Like you just have to get out there and do it. If you, the, for, I think a lot of the success that I've had is simply because I tried, period. I was in the game and therefore I had an opportunity to put the ball in the goal. If I never got off the sideline, onto the field, warmed up, stretched, into the first quarter, whatever it is, I was never going to actually make a basket or win a championship or whatever you want to call it. It was not going to happen. And I think it's just all about trying. And I, and I, I'm, you know, I think some, a lot, a lot of folks that want to be entrepreneurs or want to be successful don't even take the step of trying and getting on the field. So I would just simply say to those that are looking to start businesses or have an exit one day or dream of these things happening or raising money or whatever it is, you've got to get out there and try. That is the first step. And for me, frankly, it was the most important step because if I hadn't done it, if I hadn't said, I'm not going to take a paycheck, I'm not going to put some you know savings into this thing and I'm not going to just try this thing out of my apartment and you know, you know, pay, write the first check for the first developers to write the first lines of code and you know, start making cold calls and getting composers and getting music into the platform. If I'm not, if I didn't do that, none of that stuff, trying the tattoos, the cartoons, the voice, voicemails, all the silly things to the finally, you know, the YouTube rights management ad rep taking off, you know, it wouldn't ever happen. I think that's some of the best advice that we've had on the show. I mean, it's because you just got to do it and because you don't get really two tries at this. I mean, I mean, it, at life it is. And I think, I mean, you, you articulated it really, really well. Um, if people want more of that uh, and wanted to reach you after the show, what's the best way? 
Yeah, so uh, easy way is go to Ryan Bourne, R-Y-A-N-B-O-R-N, just like the day we're born, .net. So go to ryanborn.net. If you want my contact info, click on the About link at the top of the page. And if you read that page, you will find my personal email and my phone number. Um, you can also tweet at me at BorneRyan, that's B-O-R-N-R-Y-A-N on Twitter. And um, you can find me. I'm definitely findable. So, uh, you know, I get, I'm happy to have people reach out, but I make them do the teeniest bit of work, which is go find my contact info. <laughs> I love it. Ryan, thanks for, so much for coming on the show, man. I had a blast. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for sticking in there and listening to the episode with Ryan. I really had a lot of fun talking to him because he articulated really well what it was like to actually be an employee. And that resonated with me so much. That 1030 in the morning after the gym story just really made me laugh because what's the whole point? You know, as an entrepreneur, you're willing to literally work 16 hours a day, but the moment you're working for someone else, it all changes. So I really think if there's one thing to take away is what is it that you want to do? I mean, listen to him. He's back in the business of what he was doing before because it's just fun. So really knowing if you're going to be transitioning out of your company, what kind of things do you want to do? What problems do you want to solve and who do you want to solve them with? And then have balance now and determine what you want to do and how to create that life that you want want, regardless of whether your company's involved or not. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Give me a rating on iTunes if you got time. Otherwise, I will see you next week.